The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and it's Christmas in Lexicon Valley. But no, I'm not going to do something like the etymology of Christmas terms, because I I just did that for Thanksgiving, and last year I did the Christmas carols. Rather, I am in a cornucopia mood, and maybe that's a Thanksgiving hangover. But there are always things I think of doing on this show that I don't ever get to. I've got a file of all these little things that didn't quite make it. And to sum up this year, I figure I'm just going to do some of that stuff. It's the kind that goes through my head when I'm thinking, oh, God, what am I going to do a show about this week? And not that I'm running out yet. Talk to me in about a year. But I want to do some stuff that's been haunting me, but never quite gelled into a show. So three things and a bonus. Thing one, I bought the Batman TV show set a while ago, and then I realized I had to watch it. 100 episodes. I did it for Bilko. I did it for Dobie Gillis. But now a whole new box set of mid-20th century television. It turns out that I've been able to fold it into being a dad because my cuties love the show for some reason. I guess the bright colors or something. First, Dahlia fell in love with it. Now even little Vanessa, although she gets impatient whenever Batman and Robin aren't in the scene. Daddy, I I don't like those people where Batman and Robin. But we sit there in my man cave, and I've got Vanessa on the right and Dolly on the left, and we watch Batman eating Cheez-Its. Now, the last time we were watching, I noticed something. It was about Commissioner Gordon, played by Neil Hamilton. Listen to him right now saying party. I'm so ashamed, Batman, the way I behaved at that party. It's not your fault, Commissioner. Riddler's henchmen spiked your drinks with tempered tonic. And now listen to him talking about the animal that Smokey is. What the blazes! Great Scott, Batman! Look up there, parachute blossoming. A bear like a fallen tree? Bear. So, Commissioner Gordon is Arliss. And yet, you know, we've talked about Arlessness and we focused on New York, but there's something about Neil Hamilton's face. You could just kind of tell that he wasn't from anywhere around New York. Something, you know, phrenology has some uses. Something about the set of his mouth. I thought he's not from New York. So where is he? Nowadays, you can look it up. And it turned out that he was from eastern Massachusetts. The reason that he sounded like the Kennedys was because he was from the region that they grew up in. And so, for example, listen to a little more of the way he spoke. Why is silk like grass? Even easier. You measure both by the yard. Lumber. Yard. Lumba, yard. So, to a linguist, you think to yourself, okay, he's got the arlessness that's typical of New England. A great other example of this was Kathy Bates's accent in Dolores Claiborne. That was a wonderful little movie. And the actress who played the old lady never got credit. She was amazing, too. But listen to the accent that Kathy Bates put on, which, if you didn't know how many New Englanders talk or used to talk, sounded a little odd. But actually, she was dead on. You can be as mean and hateful as you want. But this is the last time you will ever hit me. You do it again. One of us is going to the boneyard. Now, there's a point to this. 
And it's this. Not all of New England is Arliss. It's funny how these things happen. It can seem so arbitrary. Actually, it's Eastern New England that's Arliss, whereas Western New England, despite that you're still in New England, is R full. So Vermont and Connecticut and even Western as opposed to Eastern Massachusetts have the R. It's the funniest thing because you find it interviewing people and it's not something you would expect. It's certainly not something that people in New England think about, but it's very much there. There's a line that runs down the middle. Don't believe me? Let's try listening to somebody from, say, Connecticut. This is Bob Crane. This is um, a snippet from Hogan's Heroes, a show I never got it, never understood the appeal, I, I, I hate to admit. But Bob Crane was from Connecticut. He was born in the 1920s. And yet, listen to the way he says, for example, charge. Now, Neil Hamilton would have said charge, but Bob Crane says, Sergeant, put this man on report. On what charge? He needs a shave. Or listen to him here. No Yankee accent here at all. You're certainly going about it cleverly. How can I prove to you, Hogan, I mean what I say? Well, no, you'd never do it. Do what? Africa. Nobody drops dead just to prove a point. Certainly. Never. Forget. Not never, but never. Now, maybe you're thinking, well... Connecticut doesn't count because Connecticut is really just some sort of extension of Scarsdale. And, well, Bob Crane was an actor or something like that. Okay, let's try somebody from Western Massachusetts. And we're going to do something interesting here. Western Massachusetts. Now, this is very much New England. And I know because I went to college for two years in Western New England. Great Barrington. Boy, do I remember New England in the early 80s. Two feet of snow and everybody having sex but me. Everybody in Western Massachusetts was copulating daily except me. But it was Western Massachusetts. And you know who was born in Great Barrington, other than various people who I don't know? William Edward Burghardt Du Bois. So W.E.B. Du Bois was born and raised in Great Barrington, the civil rights leader. And because he lived to about 400 years old, you can hear him talking. This is him in 1960. He's past 90. This is somebody who learned to speak in the 1870s, ladies and gentlemen. We're listening to somebody who learned to talk during the Grant administration. But the reason I want to play you Du Bois is partly just because, wow, you can hear W.E.B. Du Bois, but also because he grew up in Western Massachusetts in the old days when these ways of speaking were going strong, and listen to how awful he was. My own work at the time was trying to secure freedom and equality for American Negroes. For a quarter of a century, I edited the little monthly magazine, The Crisis. And despite opposition, I spoke plainly. I was criticized as being bitter, as seeking not simply political, but social equality for Negroes, for favoring the teachings of Karl Marx, and for joining the Socialist Party. These accusations were true. But largely as a result of my work and the work of others, the Negro made progress toward equal citizenship. Progress, but not complete success. That's a beautiful example of what linguists know as that line that runs down New England. Arliss on the right side, 
awful on the left and nobody even thinks about it. But it means you find funny things, especially in the past when these differences were most vibrant. Bronson Alcott, that's the father of Louisa May, who wrote Little Women. Bronson Alcott, transcendentalist, etc., living in the mid 19th century, was raised in Connecticut. And he moved to Concord, which is on the eastern side of the line, in the middle of his life. And at one point, he was listening to Henry David Thoreau giving a talk about the mountain known as Katahdin. And so the Native American rendition that Thoreau liked was Katahdin, K-T-A-A-D-N. So Katahdin. Alcott writes in his journal that he enjoyed a lecture that Thoreau had given on what he writes down as Cotardin. So that means that Alcott subconsciously listened to Thoreau, who would have had the Arliss accent, say Cotardin, and assumed that he was saying Cotardin in Arliss English. It's an easy kind of mistake to make. Even Dolly did it the other day. We're at the supermarket And she runs up and she says, oh, daddy, let's get a parmogram. And I said, what is that? And she said, a parmogram. Here it is over here. And she brought me a pomegranate. So it means now she certainly has not grown up around people using an Arliss accent. She had heard people talking about a pomegranate. And in her head, she thought maybe what they were saying was parmogram, just a natural thing that she did. And I said, no, no, sweetie, that's a pomegranate. And she said, oh, like a palm. And she starts pointing to her palm. I said, no, it's a pomegranate, not a parmogram. Anyway, it's interesting. Dahlia is, is a little Bronson Alcott. That's the one time anybody will ever utter that sentence. I'm going to say it one more time. Dahlia is a little Bronson Alcott. Here's something else. I get this question all the time, and it deserves a real answer. Are we slangier now? Do we use more slang in our speech? Well, you know, there are many answers to that question. It's really beyond linguistics, and it gets into social history, social psychology, and a great number of other aspects of our lives. It's an anthropological question. But one answer to it is the reason that speech looks so very much less slangier in a lot of old pop culture is simply because there's no way for us to get what the slang was, what the jokes were, because there are all sorts of things that just come and go very quickly. And as you know, the people pass on, whoever would have known the joke, we have no way of knowing that what we're hearing is slang. And we just think that vaguely people in the old days were a little awkward or you know they weren't very funny. And it's interesting how with footnotes, you could get so much out of, for example, old movie scripts where you think you're getting the jokes and you are often, but there are other things that just kind of disappear. Now, I don't mean the things that are obvious. And so, for example, one of my very favorite Bugs Bunny cartoons, High Diving Hair, where Bugs Bunny keeps on getting Yosemite Sam to go up on a stunt diving board and fall down, you know, always into a small glass or something like that, because Sam is trying to get Bugs Bunny to do it. Bugs Bunny doesn't want to do it. The joke just builds over and over and over again. At one point, Bugs Bunny puts, you know, where do, where do they get these things? He puts this door up at the end of the diving board. And the idea is that Sam is supposed to knock on the door and go through it and then, of course, go over the edge. And so he's knocking on the door and he says, Open up that door! You notice I didn't say Richard? Richard. 
Now, back in the day, if you you know watch these cartoons being stripped on TV in the 70s, you saw that cartoon over and over and you just kind of accepted this Richard thing. At a certain point, I asked my mother, why does he say, notice I didn't say Richard? And my mother said, well, there was this song called Open the Door, Richard. Now, you pretty much are only going to know that if you were around at the time, which my mother was in the late 40s. Here, for example, is the song. Open the door, Richard. Exactly one of the ages, but you can watch High Diving Hair and you know that that Richard thing, if you think about it, is a joke that you just don't get. But the things get even subtler. And so, for example, The Big Sleep, 1946, really nice movie, even though it's impenetrable. The plot, after a while, after about 45 minutes, it makes no sense. And it's okay if you don't get it because even the people who wrote it didn't understand the plot of The Big Sleep. You enjoy it for the texture. But here is a little scene where Bogart falls in with some people. And listen to this exchange. All right, outside. The shamas. The man said outside. He said that. That's what the man said. He said that. That's what the man said. Well, you know, if you're watching the movie, especially since it's so confusing in general, you just let that go by and you think, well, those characters are a little awkward. You don't notice that actually that was, as we say these days, a thing. I can even give you how it became a thing. That was a Jack Benny joke. That was something that the manservant, Rochester, the black manservant, said. And for some reason, that took the country by storm. In 1945, here is an episode where Rochester says it. Now, look, you boys pay me for the damage to my car, or I'll take you to court. Well, just a minute, Mr. Benny. You was acting kind of hasty. You ain't even let us tell our side of the story. What? You don't see nobody's side of the story but your own. Wait a minute. Are you insinuating that I'm narrow-minded, unreasonable, and hard-headed? That's what he said. That's what the man said. He knows <laughs> By the way, that scene is with Amos and Andy, who were played by white men. A truly bizarre phenomenon, but they were guesting on the show. The man who played Rochester, Eddie Anderson, was a black man. But that, for some reason, was considered very funny. And it's all over pop culture in especially 45 and 46. And it's not funny now, and you wonder why they're dwelling on it. And it's because of that. At the end of another Bugs Bunny cartoon, Batty Baseball. Listen to what the Statue of Liberty is depicted as saying. You're out! I'm out! That's what the man said. You heard what he said. He said that. You heard That's what the man said. He said that. That's what he said. He really said that. That's what he said. And that's the end. That baffled me throughout my entire childhood. But it's that joke. Also, the woman doing the voice is the incredible B. Benaderet. Just think the woman who did that voice is the woman who also did Betty Rubble and Granny. Her versatility was astounding. There's a reason why Archer goes off about her at one point in that delightful series. Another thing that would be easy to lose. Listen to, well, for one thing, you should watch The Awful Truth. Talk about the screwball comedies. That is one that is still fresh 
as a daisy, belly laughs. It could have been made yesterday, except that it was made in the 1930s. Definitely, if you only experience, say, 25 old movies, The Awful Truth should be one of them. And here is something that Cary Grant says at one point. Hey, Lucy! Lucy! That man is here! Maybe she wasn't expecting you. That man is here, but he's referring to himself. And it's kind of like, you know, some things in Shakespeare, you just let it go by. That man is here. But actually, a lot of people say that in movies of the 30s and 40s. So here is The Thin Man, delightful film. And listen to what William Powell says at one point. It goes by really quickly, but... Having a good time? Well, here's that man again. Very welcome. What is that? If you watch too many old movies and listen to too many old radio shows, you start to realize that that is a thing. People at the time clearly think it's funny when you say something along the lines of that man is here or here's that man again or the like. Turns out that if you're really obsessive about such things, you realize there was a joke. And the joke was that a husband and father is away so much that when he comes home, his child says, Mommy, that man is here again. For some reason, that was considered hilarious. I assume there was some kind of setup to it. And to my knowledge, anybody who could give you the whole joke now would be difficult to hear because they would be giving you the joke through about six feet of soil. I don't know if the joke is available, but that was what the joke was. You can hear it in that that catchphrase was so popular that Cab Calloway did a song about it. And you can listen in the patter before the lyric starts being sung what this joke was with the kid. Here it goes. Brothers and sisters, have you heard the news today? Now I've been told that Mr. Van Tuba is in town to stay. He's the new sensation. He has lots of syncopation. Come on, gather around, because I've got more to say. Thank you, Diana and Franny, for research on this, including to you, Francesca, even though you are not listening. Playing his tuba, that man is here again. He plays a hot number. Breaks up your slumber, you will dance the rumba. Oh, yeah, that man is here again. Here's another one. I have gotten this so often over the past couple years, and it's one of those things where it's taken me a while to realize that I'm getting it often because I always just think, oh, I don't know. And then I realize, wait, everybody keeps asking, why do people say, the thing is, is that watermelon Jolly Ranchers, something like that. The problem is, is, the thing is, is, what is that? Why do people say that? That is a legitimate question. What the hell is that? The thing is, is it feels just so wrong. It feels like there's a lack of structure. It's like everybody's walking around having these little strokes. But, you know, when something is that common, there's always some kind of systematicity behind it. And there is with this. Actually, linguists have been studying the problem is, is, and the thing is, is for a while. And there are all kinds of answers, and I'm going to try to give you a kind of boil down of what the thoughts are on why people say the problem is, is. If the reason isn't just that people are idiots, I mean, that's one reason you can take home. But if it's something other than that, that a linguist might enjoy, well, this is why people do this. 
systematicity. It's just like with black English when somebody says, well, what had happened was it's not just that one thing. It's not an idiom. It's a whole different way of using had that permeates the entire grammar of the dialect. In the same way, the problem is, is, and the thing is, is, are just the tip of the iceberg. Is is used weirdly in all sorts of sentences. So for example, one will hear, that's what all this stuff is based on is, or I'd like to say is that People will say that. I have heard that in call-in shows on, on NPR. So I'd like to say is that I blah, 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 blah. Or you see that again and again is that people don't know to put their hats on, that sort of thing. Or you know what is we've got kids, seven and ten, those weird is usages. Now, if you are this thing called a linguist and you are a syntactician, then you might collect examples of this from what you hear and from corpora of casual speech. And they're all over the place. And so... It turns out that the reason people say the problem is, is, is because of something called blending. Part of speaking a language is to blend. And we've seen how words can blend. And so sheriff, that word started out as the shire reeve, the reeve of the shire. Say shire reeve enough and you get sheriff or breakfast and lunch and you get brunch. That's blending words. That's easy. Well, you can blend clauses as well. So the problem is, is here's how it happens. You can say, this is the problem. He can't sing. You might put it that way. Or you might say, the problem is he can't sing. Or you might subconsciously put them together and come up with a sentence like, this is the problem is he can't sing. Now, it doesn't matter that that sentence doesn't technically make sense. Because remember, language is just messy, irregardless doesn't make sense. And to the extent that we're taught to not use that because it doesn't make sense, overwhelm doesn't make sense because whelm originally meant overwhelm. Overwhelm is redundant and the planet keeps spinning. So it's not should we blend clauses. The fact is that we do. So this is the problem is he can't sing. From there, we get to learn a little bit about syntax. So like John Lovitz used to say, it's acting. Well, this is syntax as linguists refer to it. And the basic point is that sentences start out at some part of our brains. God, it'd be nice to know where that was, but at some part of our brains ordered with the words in a different order than they always come out when we actually say it. So there's a relationship between this is the problem and that alternate way of saying it, the problem is. So for example, to take a different sentence, you say, what do you see? But you could also say, you see what? Well, the reason that you can say you see what is because it kind of makes sense. What is the object? Like you see a ball, you see an copy, you see what? The idea is that it starts out as you see what, and then at some point, the what moves to the front of the sentence and you say, what do you see? That's syntax. And so you have these movement processes. Well, in the same way, a syntactician might say that when you say the problem is the way it began was this is the problem. The idea is that you point out something, this, and then you specify that it's a problem. That happens in an order. This is the problem. And so if you instead say the problem is, the idea is that you moved problem back to the front of the sentence. So you start with, this is the problem. That's one way you might put it. That's kind of like saying, you see what? Then you might put it as the problem is, and this gets kicked away. Suppose subconsciously we use that blend. This is the problem is he can't sing. 
Now, remember, it's not about how strunk and white says we should put it, but how we do put it. Judgments, especially about how we're putting words together deep in our brains would be like getting judgy about how sperm are generated. It's just the way it is. It's down deep in there. They can't put you in jail for what you're thinking. So this is the problem is he can't sing. Well, then suppose you do the little switcheroo on this is the problem and you make it the problem is. Well, if you go from this is the problem is he can't sing to the problem is, is he can't sing, then you've got our the problem is, is. So it's because first you generate a blend deep down in your spermy head. And then if you do the little switcheroo, the kind that gets you from you see what to what do you see, then you get the problem is, is he can't sing. The two is's are left next to each other because of that movement. So that's where you get something like the thing is, is. We start with one thing and then we do these little bedroom moves. It's like a sexy thing. And it leaves two is's next to each other. So if you're thinking of becoming a linguist, then you can look forward to finding things like that normal. To be a linguist is to at least pretend to. Anyway, before I stop, I must comment on a certain thing that has given me infinite delight and the occasional pinprick. My movies this week, I know you've all been wondering, have been Viva Las Vegas and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest because I thought they'd be a natural pairing. And alongside those, I've been binging on this truly stunning new Amazon series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I walk home waiting to watch this every night. But there's something a little strange about this show because of the language. It's become fashionable these days with especially highly curated shows like that or movies to, if it's period, have the language be carefully attended to so that people don't say things that they wouldn't have said at the time. That's just become the fashion. Mad Men seems to have really said it. And so now one almost expects it. And yet for some reason in this marvelous Maisel show, everybody pretty much talks like last week. And I'm confused. I mean, is it supposed to be like Moulin Rouge where they have the clubby kind of music because they wanted you to feel like people felt then, even though everybody's in the costumes, et cetera? Because I found that wonderful. That was a wonderful thing in Moulin Rouge. Is it supposed to be that or with all due respect, creators, is it that you just don't care? What I mean is things like this. Let's listen to the wonderful Alex Borstein character and something she says about a gentleman at one point. Diane the yellow shirt. You ready? Yeah. One, two, three. Rapist. Confidence trickster. What are you, Charles Dickens? He's not a rapist. He looks pretty rapey to me. I myself, I think, first heard the term rapey in 2013. I don't think that that character would have said that. Here's another one from one of Mrs. Maisel's stand-up routines. And one of the things he says is, trust yourself. You know more than you think you do. Are you fucking kidding me? That was his sage advice. You got this? Trust me. I don't got this. And now, now I'm thinking... I got hey, this? In that meaning? As in, I can take care of this in a slangy way. Again, nobody said, I got this. You got this in 1958 and especially this one my brother's an asshole my other brother's an asshole my sister's okay but she's married to an asshole my mother washes sheets 14 hours a day 
Once a year she gets drunk and tells us about the time she came in third in the Miss Rockaway pageant and then sings Danny Boy, which is what she did for the talent portion. And you realize just how great looking she must have been if they actually gave her anything after that racket. And then she passes out, pisses herself, and doesn't speak to anyone for the next three weeks. And your dad? Oh, he's fine. Yeah, he's a trader at EF Hutton. He just bought a boat. Really? No. Haven't seen the man for 15 years. He's a total and complete asshole. Wonderful speech, but nobody called anybody an asshole in 1958. It almost seems counterintuitive given that today the word asshole is pretty much as common as the word the. But it wasn't current at that point. Asshole arose in the 70s, and Jeff Nunberg actually did a whole book about it called Ascent of the A-Word. Holden Caulfield never called anybody an asshole, and you can tell that he thought everybody was one, and I'm quite sure that that could have gotten by the censors at least once. Even though I'm only 29, I'm old enough to remember in the 70s when asshole was coming in as a fresh new term. 1958, no asshole only (laughs) anus. So make no mistake, folks, I want to lick your show. I mean, everything about it, the costumes, the sets, the music. I love the show. Luscious piece of work. I'm one of the people you're winking at when you name one of the customers in the department store, Mrs. Marichek. I get it. Love you. Love the show. But what's up with the language, dude? Because to me, language is, if I may venture an expression dating way back to 1958, a thing, which Mazel, folks, you've used on the show as well when I know that people were not calling things a thing before about 2000, as unhip as I tragically am. I hope language is a thing to all of my listeners. Happy holidays to everybody. Thank you for sticking with me throughout this year. And goodness, please keep sending me all that mail despite its crushing weight, because although I I just can't answer all of it, I need you all to tell me what you really want to know about the weird thing that linguistics is. And on that, you can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. This show required a ridiculous volume of clips. And so special thanks to Mike Volo this week. And also thank you, Mike, for inviting me to stealth take over this show. I am, as always, John McWhorter. And here is to 2018. Pablo Picasso was never called an asshole. I love you. Trumpcast is an almost daily podcast that attempts to identify and understand the real Donald Trump. Jacob Weisberg, chairman of the Slate Group, writer Virginia Heffernan, and Slate chief political correspondent Jamel Bowie talk to historians, psychiatrists, journalists, and other experts to help explain who this man is and why this is happening right now in the United States of America.